Amen. That was a perfect song to lead us into our time of teaching this morning, where our heart is that we would be drawn nearer to the cross um, where Jesus had died. My name is John Andrew Clayton. I'm the student pastor here at Central. I'm glad to be with you this morning up here. Um, As we have been walking through the gospel of Mark, our heart has been to be amazed at Jesus, at the things that he said, the things that he did. You know, many times we, we read the gospels or we think about Jesus, but the reality of our lives still weigh heavy on our hearts, whether it's a sickness in our family or a financial need, or whatever it is that's going on in our lives, we find ourselves distracted because of the needs we have. And our our heart is not to forget about those needs, but it's to recognize the beauty of Jesus and let that transform everything about the way that we live and think while we're here on this earth. And so that's our heart this morning. So open with me, if you will, to Mark 1. We're going to be in Mark 1, starting in verse 35 this morning. And if you remember, the Gospel of Mark is an account of Jesus' life as told by Mark, who received it from Peter, the Apostle Peter. And so one of the things that I want to set up for us this morning as we jump into this Gospel is to really recognize the impact that amazement at Jesus has on a person. Peter was amazed by who Jesus was. But this gospel of Mark is a direct result of the effect that that amazement had on other people. Namely, Mark, a disciple of Peter, someone who spent a significant amount of time with him. He heard Peter talking about this guy named Jesus and was so captivated by what he heard that he was prompted and compelled by the Holy Spirit to write these things down and to record them for us so that we may recognize too what it was that Jesus did. And so as, as we jump into this passage this morning, keep that in mind. That inasmuch as we are amazed with Jesus, the people around us are going to be able to tell. They're going to be able to tell the love that we have for him, and they're going to be changed by that, just as Mark was through Peter. And so let's read this morning, starting in Mark 1, 35. It says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus departed and went out to a desolate place, And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, And kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Before we dig into this passage line by line, let's set the context for us a little bit. 
If you remember, Mark begins his gospel by highlighting it as the beginning of Jesus' gospel ministry. And in Mark 1, verse 14, it reads, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So immediately upon coming into Galilee, you see Jesus coming with a message. He is preaching this gospel of the kingdom of God and giving these people a command. He says, repent and believe in the gospel. But not only did he come preaching this message, but he came substantiating this message with these acts of healing. And if you remember, first he healed this man with an unclean spirit, as Mark records, and then later he healed Peter's mother-in-law. And then after that, it's as if the entire town heard about everything that was going on and all flooded the place where Jesus was. And in Mark 1, 32 through 34, we, we read this where it says, That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons." And so you see this popularity spreading among all the people where they're hearing about these things that Jesus is doing. They're hearing about this man who can heal people with unclean spirits or heal people who are sick. And so as people are listening to this message that Jesus is sharing, they're comparing that with this power that they see in him, saying this has got to be none other than the Son of God, for no one else could do these sorts of things and as we step into our passage this morning, 35, one of the things that I want to highlight for you is that there are three parts within this passage, three ministries, three elements in which you see Jesus engaging. And the first is praying. You see him praying out by himself. Second, you see him preaching. And then third, you see him healing. And so these are the three elements that we want to focus on today, taking a look at what it was that drove Jesus to pray to preach and to heal and to hopefully be amazed at Jesus because of what we see within this passage. And so let's begin. Mark 1, 35. We're going to take this just verse by verse this morning. It says, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. You've got to remember that Jesus has been flooded by these people that are in Galilee. He's been healing people presumably all night, all morning, the entire time that he's been there as they've heard about these things that he can do. Yet it still says that rising very early in the morning, he went out. He departed and went to find a place to pray in order to be alone with his father. And it's not just that he rose very early in the morning, but one of the unique elements of this phrase in the original Greek is that it, it says very early while it was still night. So it's not just that the sun's just barely risen. It hasn't even risen yet. It's still night. Jesus is exhausted, yet he still gets up early in the morning, leaves his disciples, leaves whoever it is that he's around. He departs looking for a desolate place, looking for some time alone where he can spend to rest in prayer with his Father. That's huge. That sets the stage for the, the rest of this passage where we see the importance that Jesus assigns to spending time with his Father. 
And Jesus did this frequently. We see in Luke 22 that it says this was his custom. His custom was to get away frequently to spend time with his father, finding a desolate place, somewhere where he knew no one would bother him, where no one would interrupt his time that he had with his father. He also set this example for his disciples. We see in, later on in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark 6, 31, that after the disciples are sent out two by two, they come back to Jesus desiring to tell him everything that they'd seen and done. And he says, okay, come away by yourselves for a little bit. Let's find a desolate place to rest for a while. He set this example for his disciples. This was an incredibly important time for Jesus. Yet despite the frequency with which Jesus retreated to spend time with his father, Mark only records three instances where he gets away to pray. This is the very first of those instances. The other is immediately after the the feeding of the 5,000, right before he walks on water, with the last being the time that Jesus spent in the Garden of Gethsemane. So since he did this frequently, and Mark only records three of these scenes, this has got to be a very important moment in the life of Jesus. This time that he departed from his disciples in the middle of this healing ministry to spend time with his father. You know, I often ask myself, when it's not explicitly mentioned, Jesus, what are you praying about? What was the content of his prayer? And it doesn't list out for us in this passage what it was that Jesus was praying But we get a little bit of a hint in Matthew 6 where Jesus teaches his disciples what it looks like to pray. In Matthew 6, Jesus commands his disciples, pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. As you take a look at this prayer that Jesus records for his disciples, teaching them what it looks like to pray, one of the things that you immediately see is these six lines that Jesus delivers. These first set of three, our Father in heaven, he says, hallowed be your name. May you be lifted up and glorified. May you be exalted above all else. He enters into this time of prayer by magnifying his Father. Then he says, your kingdom come. His entire ministry was based around this coming of the kingdom of God. That is, that's the content of his preaching, as you remember from, from earlier. It says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we know from later on in the life of Jesus, this your will be done isn't a simple prayer. To submit to his Father's will meant everything for him. If you remember him in that, in that garden of Gethsemane, that last moment of prayer that, that Mark records, as he's praying, Father, if possible, would you take this cup from me? But what is his response? It says, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. These are heavy words that Jesus is praying. And this first set of three, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. These all deal with magnifying the Father and see in everything that he wants accomplished on this earth to take place. These next set of three, where he teaches them to pray, give us this day our daily bread. 
Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. These deal with our neediness. Do you recognize that? He's saying, give me today what it is that I need. Give me today what I need to get through today preaching your message, preaching this gospel of the kingdom of God. Sustain me as I, as I give this message to these people that I'm around. Then he prays, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now we know Jesus didn't have to pray that piece of the prayer, but it was essential that he set this example for his disciples because they very well needed to pray this. And he says, lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Saying, Father, as we are in the middle of delivering your message to these people, would you keep us safe from the enemy? By this point in time, Jesus had already spent 40 days and nights in the wilderness of Judea, wrestling with Satan as Satan tempted him again and again and again. While it only mentions three specific temptations, we know that that, that was long-lasting, and it endured long after those 40 days. Mark even records that the devil left him at the end of those 40 days until a more opportune time. And so Jesus was intimately aware of his neediness of the Father. He knew what that meant for him. And so he sets this example for his disciples. I only imagine that as Jesus retreats in the middle of this healing ministry, that this is the same sort of prayer that he is praying. First, lifting up his Father acknowledging him for who he is, exalting him far above anything else, but then also acknowledging his neediness, saying, Father, I I need you. I need you to continue to strengthen me as I deliver this message, as I preach this gospel of the kingdom. Now, I think for us, before we continue with the rest of this passage, we need to take a little bit of an internal survey, asking ourselves, is this what our prayer life looks like? I hope that's a convicting question for you. Maybe it's not. Maybe your prayer life looks just like this. But I know that if I'm honest with myself, I allow the things that are going on in my life to far outweigh this sort of approach to prayer. Or maybe my prayers are kind of haphazard and and quick. My prayer for myself this morning and for you is that we would take a look at this time that Jesus spends intentionally getting away from his disciples spending time with his Father, and that we would not just be amazed by Jesus, but that we would allow this amazement to transform the way that we pray. May we, in our prayers, lift high the name of our Father and also recognize our neediness and recognize his desire to listen to us in our neediness. That's my prayer for us this morning. As we continue, verse 36 says, And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. Imagine what this must have been like for the disciples. As they have been witnessing all of these things that Jesus is doing, they're seeing these healings take place. People are clamoring to get to Jesus. And in the middle of this sort of ministry success, what does Jesus do? Sorry, bye, I'm gone. He leaves. It doesn't record whether or not he he tells them, but you can only assume by virtue of his desire to get alone that he didn't even tell his disciples where he was going. He just left. Maybe hoping they weren't going to be watching him as he was on his way out, not watching where he was going. He leaves to spend time with his father. Disciples are searching for him as people presumably come back 
to them searching for Jesus, desperately seeking to be healed. These, these disciples go out searching for Jesus. In verse 37, we see them find him. It says, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. It doesn't say how long it took them to search. I only imagine it was probably quite some time that they spent searching for him. Jesus probably knew, you know, the locations around that area that they were most familiar with. He probably sought a place that was um, not very familiar to them, so they wouldn't find him immediately, so he could really spend some good quality time with his father. But regardless, they found him after who knows how long of searching, and they immediately come to him and immediately say, everyone is searching for you. It's interesting to note that they are interrupting this time of prayer, but interrupting it in their minds with the the thought of alerting him to what's going on. Hey, everyone is looking for you. Everything you've been doing, these people want more. They want more. William L. Lane, a famous New Testament scholar, remarked on this statement from the disciples by saying, there is a note of reproach in the statement, all are seeking for you, which means, what are you doing here when you should be in the midst of the multitude who are clamoring for you? I think these disciples, like us a lot of times, believe that God is, is at work in the middle of some sort of big popular thing and not at work in, in other things. These disciples assume Jesus is seeking to ride this wave of popularity that he has stirred up in Galilee, when in reality, what's Jesus doing? He is waiting with bated breath for every word that comes from his Father, seeking direction. Now, I know for me, I don't know about for the rest of you, but I know when I think about ministering or doing whatever it is that I'm going to do throughout my day-to-day life, I tend to look at things and and assign a, a certain level of success to those things based off the way that people are responding. Anybody there with me? You there? Here we see Jesus doing the exact opposite. That is, that is the most countercultural thing for us to understand. If you were to go into to churches that have a, a thriving, successful ministry where people are beating the door down to get inside to hear about this Jesus, this sort of response of, no, let's, let's, let's begin doing something different. Why? Because God is leading us in that direction. Yeah, maybe there are a whole lot of people desperately seeking what we've got, but if the Father is leading us in a different direction, who are we to question His will? This is totally countercultural to us. But these disciples, like us, assume Jesus is just seeking to ride out this popularity, to continue to build up this momentum in Galilee. Yet Jesus, seeking direction from his Father, he has a different idea. In verse 38, we see Jesus respond. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. You always see within Jesus this attitude that there is one mission. 
one mission that the Father has sent me on, and that is to proclaim the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God to everyone. All throughout Isaiah, you see this desire for God's name to be made known among all the nations. Not just Collierville, not just Tennessee, not just the U.S., not in this time, just Galilee, but everywhere. Jesus says, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. In response to the disciples' question, Jesus reveals the priority of his mission, which is to preach the kingdom of God to all peoples. In Luke 4, which is Luke's version of this scene right here, Luke records Jesus' response as, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. So we must understand that Jesus' primary mission is to preach the good news of the kingdom of God coming near to people. Everything else, all of his miracle work is subservient to that end. The miracles, the healings, all of that was done in order to substantiate these claims to reveal that he really was the Son of God, to show his compassionate hand. But that was all done in service to Jesus' preaching. That was his primary, primary mission, that all may know that the kingdom of God is at hand, that God has come near through the person of Jesus. Verse 39, And he went out throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. So that's what he did. Spending time alone with his father, receiving direction from his father, knowing the popularity that's there in those towns in Galilee, but still hearing, no, I want you to go elsewhere. Go to these other towns. That's exactly what Jesus, is, Jesus does. We don't see the disciples' reaction to this statement that he must go to these other towns But simply by knowing that they went with him, we know they must have obeyed. Whether it was truly recognizing in that moment the importance of what Jesus was doing, the example that he was laying out for them and submitting to the will of God or not, maybe it was just, okay, Jesus, we don't understand, but you've shown yourself to be faithful up to this point, so we'll follow you regardless, even if we don't understand. Who knows? Who knows what was going on in their minds? But regardless we see them go with him. Go with him. And as Jesus goes, he continues this preaching ministry. And you've got to assume that in their minds, they're reflecting back on this time in Galilee, remembering everything that was happening, remembering the people that were beating the door down to get to Jesus. And maybe at first, before this level of popularity had risen in these other towns, they were thinking, Jesus, we told you. We told you so. Didn't seem like a smart move. Yeah, you did it anyways. You said, we got to go. And look at this. We had more people back there than here. You don't see that take place. I'm sure maybe that was in their hearts a little bit. How do I know that? Because that's in our hearts, right? And they were human like we're human. But regardless, we see Jesus going and preaching in those synagogues and casting out demons, continuing to preach the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God and substantiate those claims, revealing who he truly was in order to make those, that news that the kingdom has come near, to make that more understandable. 
And I'm sure eventually these disciples must have recognized what it was that Jesus was doing and what it truly meant to, to be guided by the Father and to recognize that anything we determine as success in ministry comes from that, regardless of what it looks like on the outside. It comes from us being obedient to our Father's call. So for us, I think our challenge this morning is again to, to be amazed at Jesus' commitment to his Father's will and mission, but more than that, to allow that to transform the way that we submit our lives to his will. For us, in our decision-making, my prayer is that we follow God's call, even if it doesn't appear to make sense. I think you, you probably know those times. If you are a believer in here, you know those times where the Lord is calling you to do something. And you also know that a lot of times it does not appear to make sense on the surface. But at the end of the day, just like Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, what are we going to pray if not, may your will be done. May your will be done. My wife and I, we, we spent a number of years in Ecuador, which is a country at the, the northwestern part of South America, as we felt the Lord call us there. And before we got called to Ecuador, we were serving here at Central. I was here on staff in student ministries. My wife was teaching Spanish at a, a local high school. We loved what we were doing. We saw tremendous success in those ministries, but the Lord came and prompted our hearts and would not relent, pushing us to leave, to leave what we loved doing and to begin to, to listen to him for direction as to where we ought to go. Ended up that he was directing us towards South America. We spent a number of years living down there, working, investing in, in local leaders and pastors, seeking to equip them while we didn't quite understand, Lord, why, why are you calling us out of what we love doing? I'm so grateful that for once we obeyed that call. It seems like there are far more, it's far more often that we disobey than obey because we're hard-headed. I hope we're not alone in that. But my prayer for myself and my prayer for all of you is that as we think of what it is that we're doing here, in this short time that we have in the body, and as we listen to the things that the Lord is putting on our hearts, whether it's He's prompting you for the first time or whether He is unrelenting in His promptings, in everything that you do, would you follow after the Lord and what He's pushing you to do, even if it doesn't appear to make sense? And you will be blessed because of it. That doesn't mean He's going to fill your life with you know, making everything easy. Our time in Ecuador certainly was not easy. It was some of the hardest two years uh, that we've lived. But at the end of the day, we felt as if we truly knew the heart of our Father better, regardless of what we were forced to pass through, regardless of, of the, the hurt that came with it. We felt like we knew our Father's heart a little better. And at the end of the day, that is worth anything. I'll give up any comf comfort for that. That's my prayer for you as well, especially as we look at Jesus' preaching ministry and the ear that he has tuned to his Father's voice. That's our heart. Moving on, we, we enter into this time of, of healing, beginning in verse 40. It says, And a leper came to him, imploring him, 
and kneeling said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. First, we, we see this leper coming to Jesus. I want you to examine the posture of this leper. First, you see him entering the city. And if you know anything about Jewish tradition in this time, especially in Galilee, which is a, uh, which is a, a Jewish province, the lepers were not allowed into the city. In Leviticus 13, we see some outlines that are, that are given to people who have leprosy or similar skin diseases. Leviticus 13, 45 through 46, it says, The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose, and he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And so for him to even enter into this city, he is immediately putting himself in grave danger. The people in the cities, when a leper would enter into those cities, they obviously had every desire to prevent that disease from spreading among the people in the city. And so they would drive the lepers out. So this leper entered into this city knowing what awaited him knowing the risk that awaited him. Yet he had heard about this guy named Jesus. He said, I don't care. I don't care about any of this. I've got to find this guy. And he entered into this city. Next it says he implores Jesus. He begs him, begging him. And it says kneeling. Not only was he imploring, but he was kneeling in front of Jesus and finally, he, he speaks. He says, if you will, you can make me clean. Within this statement, you see the leper doing two things simultaneously. First, he is acknowledging Jesus' power by saying, you can make me clean. But before he even says that, he is submitting to Jesus' will. He says, if you will, if you will, you can make me clean. And it's important to note, too, that there are only two people in the Old Testament, two documented cases of lepers who had been healed of this disease. One we find in Numbers 12, Miriam. The other in 2 Kings, Naaman. The only two people we had known who had been healed of this disease. In fact, rabbis would frequently say, as, as David Teed, uh, another New Testament scholar and Old Testament scholar notes, that it was more difficult, more complex to heal a person of leprosy than it was to raise the dead. That was the traditional saying of rabbis in these days. So for this leper to come to Jesus, coming, submitting to his will, but also recognizing his power, you know that he is coming, truly understanding how powerful Jesus is. Maybe he's coming thinking, well, I'm a lost cause, but this is my last shot. No one else has been able to heal me. This guy's been able to heal others, so we'll give it a try. One last attempt, and he comes to Jesus. Risking everything, Jesus does what? In verse 41, it says, Moved with pity, he, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. 
in Mark 1, in some of these previous healing moments, we see Jesus at a mere voice command healing people without any touch. Yet you see Jesus reaching out his hand. Before he says a word, reaching out his hand and touching this leper, then saying, I will be clean. Jesus is risking everything. Again, Leviticus outlines everything that a good Jewish person ought to do in order to remain clean. And one of those is, do not touch a leper. Do not touch any person who is unclean, or you shall yourself become unclean. Jesus reaches out his hand, touches this leper, who presumably hadn't been touched in who knows how long. From the time he'd had the disease, I'm sure not a single person, family member, spouse or otherwise, had laid a hand on him. He hadn't felt human touch in who knows how long, the warmth that comes with that. And upon imploring Jesus, he feels Jesus reach out his hand and place his hand on him, saying, I will be clean. Verse 42 says, immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. You see that within this healing, Jesus is conveying numerous characteristics about him and his power. You see, first it was performed out of compassion. It says, moved with pity, moved with compassion. He reached out his hand and touched him. His healings were performed out of compassion. They were immediate, as we see right here. They were also complete, as we see with the healing of of Simon's mother-in-law. These healings were complete, a total restoration. But finally, and most importantly, these healings communicated Jesus' power to forgive sins. And I think for us this morning, that's the crux of what we have to understand. Because as these people were amazed with what Jesus was doing, it wasn't the simple power to heal an external affliction that they were amazed at, but it was what was communicated through this healing act. There was a, a, a very well-known uh, theology in these days that comes from, from the Pentateuch and from the book of Deuteronomy. It's known as Deuteronomic theology. And in essence, it's kind of bound up within these words that God delivered first to Abram and then later on to, to Moses and others and the people of Israel, where he says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. What's entailed in that is if you do well, it will be well for you. So if you keep from sinning, you will be just fine. Whereas If you sin, if you do not do well, I will curse you. And these physical afflictions were looked at as a manifestation of God's curse. And so when this leper comes to Jesus, everyone around looked at this leper as if he had been cursed by God, that this leprosy was a result of that curse, a result of his own sin. We see that in in John 9, as Jesus and his disciples passed by a man who'd been blind from birth. If you remember this, the disciples asked, uh, Jesus, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Do you remember Jesus' response? He says, neither. Rather, 
This took place in this man's life so that the glory of God and his power may be demonstrated through it. Completely changing the mindset of these people. In Matthew 9, we see a paralytic being brought to Jesus. And as these friends lay their paralytic friend in front of Jesus right at his feet, Jesus doesn't reach out his hand as with the leper and touch him and says, I will be healed. But rather, Jesus first says, Son, your sins are forgiven, without even acknowledging his paralysis. And then the Pharisees begin to grumble. They say, Who is this man to forgive sins? And Jesus, knowing what was in their hearts, he responds, That you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Rise and walk. He says, What's easier to say? Son, your sins are forgiven, or rise and walk? Look at the power that I have because of who I am. Rise and walk. And that leper rose, took his mat, and walked. And so in the mindset of these Pharisees, these Jewish leaders who are around, they're not seeing a simple act of healing. They're not seeing a simple man who's been paralyzed gain the use of his legs. They're not seeing a leper simply be healed of these external afflictions what they are seeing is the one who has the power to cure the curse of sin. That's what they're seeing. And that's the most important element of these healing moments is for these people to recognize that more important, far and away the most important element of of this preaching is not the healing of your temporary circumstances, but it's this eternal healing of the curse of sin through this healing, Jesus was communicating his power to reverse the curse of sin to this leper, but also to all of those who are around. That's huge. Verse 43, we see the response. It says, Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to no one, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But despite this command, say nothing to no one, what do we see this guy do? It says, but he began to go out and talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Who knows what the heart of this man was? Maybe it was something as simple as, how can I refrain? After experiencing this moment how can I refrain from, from shouting from the rooftops everything that I've seen? Or maybe he was a, you know, a little more malicious in his intent. Who knows? I, I, would, I would believe it'd be the, the first that he couldn't refrain from sharing with everyone around him everything that he'd seen and experienced. He disobeyed Jesus' command. But that's, if you look through the rest of the, the gospel narratives, uh, that is the, the most disobeyed command is the, uh, the command to say nothing to no one. They just couldn't refrain. And he began to, to speak to everyone else about it. So Jesus could no longer enter the towns out in the desolate places. But it's important for us to note that it, despite the fact that this changed Jesus' plan a little bit, maybe he could no longer enter these cities, the effect was no different. Since people were still, whether he was in the city or in the countryside, People were coming to him from every corner. His plan would not be thwarted. 
in their lives or in our lives. His plan cannot be thwarted. So for us this morning, as we wrap up our time, the, command, the, the, the challenge for us is not simply to be amazed at Jesus' power and authority over this world, but it's again to be transformed by this. It's to trust in his sovereign and healing hand, but also to rest in the peace that such a trust brings. That's my, command, my, my challenge and my prayer for all of you and for myself. So let me close with a word of prayer for all of us this morning. Father, we thank you for who you are. And Father, we thank you for how much you love us. And Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you that you have disclosed yourself to us in such a beautiful way. And Father, we pray that you would cause amazement to well up within us and that you would transform us from the inside out, that this amazement would result, Father, in an overwhelming trust in your will for our lives. Father, we love you this morning, and we pray, God, that you would continue to lead us. In your name we pray, amen.